Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm very excited to have another wonderful episode. Um, A Gift from Adversity is coming from a book, which is same title, A Gift from Adversity. Julie Love, it's available on Amazon. The subtitle is Domestic uh, Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. I published this book in 2020, and I have received different messages from different people from different parts of the world that they are also the victims of these adversities. And this year, 2022, I felt very compelled to create a platform where we focus on talking about adversities, tools that they use to overcome, and the gift that came from it. And I'm very, very grateful to have so many wonderful guests from all over the world speaking about their adversities and tools that they use to overcome. And it has been such an amazing journey and experience for me to learn, for audience to learn. And I've had audience come from different parts of the world who listen and who's listened to my episode coming from different parts of the world. And it's been such a great experience so i would like to thank all the guests who came to our show so far and also today's guest luke greenheart hi luke thank you so much for coming hello thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure to be here and to share and connect with you and the audience especially live i love that it's live i think it just makes it even more interactive and personal absolutely so since this is live if anyone's listening and they have comment for question for me, Luke, feel free to type on the comment section. So Luke, please tell our audience who you are and where you're coming in and what you do. And if you have a website or social media that you want to promote. Yeah, so my name's Luke, as you said, I'm, you might be able to hear from my accent. I'm from the UK, just born south of London, and I'm currently in Spain. And now, currently, I say I work in holistic mental health, but my life has been one where it's been a lot of adversity pretty much my entire life. And yeah, that started since childhood. So it's a long journey, but I share a lot of things online now through uh, YouTube, mainly sharing just my life journey. And like you, I wanted to interview others on their journeys and lives. And I think the power of connecting and sharing um, really helps others, especially we all resonate differently with different people, different voices, different stories, but we all have similar feelings, different experiences. So yeah, YouTube's the best place for people to find me. Just type Luke Greenheart on YouTube and I will pop up. I'm also on... um, lukegreenheart.com where you can find more on my personal content and coachgreenheart.com for my holistic services so if you type luke greenheart on youtube they can find your um, channel yeah that's the easiest way type my name in youtube google and i've got a lot of content so it just comes straight up and how long have you been living in spain i've been in spain now like Spain and a bit of Portugal and for the last five, four or five years, I think. Lose, lose, lose track of time a little bit. I think it's about four or five years. And then where are you originally from um, UK? Which part of the country that you're from? 
So from the south, just where London is, literally half an hour south of London, and that's where I'm from, small city. It's quite built up, but in terms of city size, I wouldn't say it's huge, but it's bigger than a village, 130,000, 50,000 people. Wonderful. Luke, I just want to appreciate you for having my son on your podcast show. It was such a highlight. Um, so I just wanted to let you know that. Yeah, no, it was great to interview him. And he's still my youngest guest. I don't know if I'll be able to break that record at any point, but it was amazing to to hear his passion and his story and his journey. And he so willingly shared so easily. So no, it, was, it was beautiful to speak with him and connect. Wonderful. So Luke, let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience what was your adversity? Yeah, so mine, I think it's been such a... Con- continuous journey of adversity so I will do a sort of timeline it's probably the easiest way because it isn't just one event but like the first the normal thing that seems to happen these days divorce from my parents about five but that from my memory I don't have any really traumatic memory of that experience but at the same time my mum was developing severe mental illness so that's what my memory is focused on and where my feelings were focused is from five to ten life was just getting really different really dramatic very different other people's lives and my mum was looking after me and my brother but she had no her skills of being a mother were just deteriorating I have no real memory of her any other way than her schizophrenia she developed severe schizophrenia depression she's diagnosed bipolar it just continuously got worse but to the worst extent that I've ever seen and still seen to this day I've seen a lot of people that have said they've got schizophrenia, but they've got a job, they're working, you know, and they just feel they have different personalities and a little bit see things differently. And I'm my mum was full on. The world was a different place for her. Her behaviour was really hard to, to just deal with as a child. And by the age of seven, um, I was questioning taking my own life because my life was bizarre and stressful and painful. So I'd be banging my head on the wall and just days without food sometimes in a filthy place and just struggled especially seeing other people's lives when I went to school the normality they had and just not having that so that was the beginning of my sort of chaos and trauma and adversity and because it was my mother I was there for her looked after her but it just continually got worse through my teens um, into my 20s but during that journey, I managed to fall in love with someone. I hid that accident. Like I didn't, wasn't looking for love because I felt so uncomfortable in my teens. But I just met someone and it was one of them instant connections. Uh, we ended up seeing each other. I hid my mum. I hid all my depression and my own things. And I was quite excited to be distracted by this, this beautiful girl. Uh, after a few years, I told her about my mother. I struggled. I broke down. I cried. I really couldn't say the words my mother's ill without being really affected. Um, but my own mental health, my own depression, my own uh, chronic fatigue, insomnia was just getting worse and worse. And in my mid early 20s, uh, we ended up getting divorced after 10 years together because the way I see it now is she didn't know how to handle or cope with whatever was going on in, with me. Because, again, it was that mental illness side where if I had a limb missing or a broken leg, someone could see it, understand it. But when you can't get out of bed or when you can't sleep, and people feel like it's your choice. Why don't you just do this? Why can't you just do this? And it's like everything in you wants to do that and you can't. And it's such a painful place to be. So for me, it was like that continuing. continuing. And then I ended up in Spain 
because after a few years, I was getting myself together and feeling a little bit better in general after after the divorce, because that really knocked me. Um, and I met someone else, and I say accidentally fell in love because I had no intention of that happening. Um, and then we did after being a fr friends for a year and a half. But then she had a cardiac arrest, dropped dead for two minutes, and she was just not the same. She was wheelchair bound, really, really ill fully medicated and just suffering as well. My life at this point, caring for my mother, caring for now my new love, I just was struggling again. And this was only in 2015. And I was back to being like, I can't take life anymore. And I questioned taking my own life again. And it was only in the last minutes before I literally was going to jump off a bridge did I change my mind. And I didn't do it. But it was like life is suffering. And the diagnosis I got with Danielle is I'll be her carer. And she's going to die within the next five years. She's never going to walk again. All these things were adding up. So my current moment was pain and suffering. My future was pain and suffering. My past was pain and suffering. So again, it was just like such a painful place to exist. So that was some of my adversity. And there's so much more. Like that's trying to sum up a good 30 years worth of life. But it's always been chaos. That's the only thing I can describe it as. It's always been unexpected chaos. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm a survivor. And just to let you know and the audience know the magnitude of trauma that affects in relationship. And also, like you said, just to say a word mother or just to confine with somebody, it is huge. And it is like crazy that people don't understand. So your case is mom, my case is dad, that for instance, when people ask me like 20 years ago, what does your father do or, I just burst into tears. I just couldn't even like process. So my first marriage failed like same similar reason as you because mental health talk was never talked about. And then I had no idea what was going on. So Luke, let's go back to your childhood. You mentioned a lot about your mother's mental health. Where was your dad? So this was back early 90s, England. My dad, I found out later, my dad tried to get full custody of us, of me and my brother, but he wasn't able to, even though my mom was diagnosed with mental illness and everything. And if anyone was to have visited the house, they would have seen the mess. The, it was just, the fridge was moldy. You know, the sink was even moldy. Under the cupboards was cobweb. Nothing was able to be cleaned. We was even living off food parcels would get delivered now and then, especially around the holiday seasons. And we wouldn't have it if it wasn't for them time. So someone knew there's a problem, but no one took us out of the problem. So it was very bizarre for me looking back. It was like how it was so obvious, but no one stepped in. But my dad always wanted to step in, but we also hid everything from him because he was a weekend dad. We'd see him on the weekends. He'd come pick us up. He was always terrified that he would make my mother worse. So he would park like a good five minutes around the corner so she doesn't even see him because he was always scared that he would trigger something and he would make her act really upset or something would be wrong because he, for all his life, didn't really understand why they even broke up because he never fell out of love with her. It was just as her illness got worse, she just didn't want to be with him. And he, again, couldn't understand what was even happening and developing. 
um, but he didn't want to end it. So it was really uncomfortable and painful for him. So then when he picked us up on the weekends, we wouldn't tell him anything that's just happened during the week. One, we didn't want to talk about it because this was our escape. This was a bit of freedom from our chaos during the week. We didn't want to burden our dad with that pain and we didn't want to get our mum in trouble. We were scared as kids, like me and my brother spoke about it. We were scared if we was to voice up something, something bad could happen to her and we cared for her. So we just kept it silent. But my dad was amazing. I uh, really, really loved him. Had a great childhood experience with him, but it was two dualities. He didn't have a lot of money. He would take us, he bought a van and stuck mattress in it and like made it into like a camper van that he made himself and would take us to the beach and we'd just go park up somewhere and stay there for a couple of days um, over the weekend. So we got like some real natural experiences that were completely bipolar to our weekdays. So I think that's like part of what kept me alive, to be honest, because I looked forward to them weekends away and it was something really um, beautiful to experience, but at the same time, just more bizarre when I look back on how strange my upbringing was. And you mentioned that you wanted to take your life at age seven, that's so, so early. Like, what was it like? Like, no, were you fully aware of what was going on? It was more of impulsive reaction to what was going on because when you are experiencing those trauma and abuse oftentimes at young age especially in myself my case i had no idea what was going on i didn't even know it was sexual abuse i didn't know it was abuse i didn't know what to name it and I didn't know I had a PTSD until I was 22. So how were you processing and then those adversities and challenges in the childhood led to that kind of thought? Yeah, so when, when I was a child, the hardest thing was, again, like you said, there wasn't a feeling like I'm being abused or this is wrong. Like not as an early child, it was just, this is uncomfortable. This doesn't feel good. And you don't want to wake up the next day because it's the same as the day before and you didn't enjoy it and you don't see a way out like you just don't know you you don't see so much of a future when you're really young you're not like thinking oh when I'm a teenager this will happen when I'm 20 I will do this when I'm 30 I'll do this it was just like you're very much you know you're living day to day is how I see it when I was really young um, but it made me just question life because I was like I started to think about existence and what is what is this thing of being alive or what is the point of living? You know, I started to question religion. I had a very loose religious background. My my nan was a Catholic, but only she put the religion in a little bit. But I had the concept of a God. I had the concept of, you know, you pray for help when you feel scared or when something's bad or you need to pray for someone. So I remember like praying when I was a really young child and crying and crying and just feeling there was no one answering me. And then I just like thought, well, this doesn't work. You know, as a child, and it was like, right, and I was just really thinking, what is the point of life? Why do I exist for? And that just started from a young age. But when it was really painful and the house was very chaotic and I was sometimes very fearful because my mum would be shouting and screaming at things that weren't there in the house. It was like a haunted house some of the time. And I remember just barricading my door up and stuff and just been sitting in my room, just scared, freaked out and just having this unpredictable sort of feeling but just feeling different to every single one else especially once I went to school and I wasn't necessarily bullied I was terrified I would be picked on if people knew about my mother 
so I wouldn't talk about it in school with anyone but it was a we lived quite close to the school and she'd be walking the streets in the middle of the night shouting barefoot or in a dressing gown or begging on the streets and knocking on people's doors so she, it wasn't like people around the area didn't know who she was I was just terrified they'd know she's my mother you know so it was like that was the thing in school it was like the, it was more the fear and the shame that that could be attached to me and then I would be vulnerable or attacked or but I didn't really get bullied I didn't get harassed it was just like I just felt different very very different and he had a sibling growing up yeah so I had an older brother he's three and a half years older um again I think he was a massive part to making me feel safe when I was younger because when I was like seven he's like 10 years old uh once he got into his teens you know we'd fight a little bit more I think he's also grown up in this traumatic environment for maybe a little longer than I did and he has memories of her life a bit more before whereas I don't so I think for him it's even more sensitive to like he saw what he lost I didn't see what I lost I just had to imagine that um so he saw what disappeared through his life but he also became very protective over me making sure that I was safe in school I remember being in secondary school when I was like a teenager and my brother's always made himself very tough very strong to look after himself for probably the same reasons because he didn't want to get picked on and I remember walking through school once and some kid was picking on all the kids in front of me as he came along and then he went to say something to me and his friend nudged him and he's like oh don't pick on him that's Ryan's little brother and I remember thinking, oh, I've got like this little protector. I didn't know it's the first time we'd been in the same school as each other. So I think that helped a lot as well in my teenage years. But I also started to do the same and toughen myself up. I was like, I've got to learn to make sure no one can pick on me. I'm going to get strong, get tough. <laughs> so talk to me about school, like that you are pretending, but how was your grade? How was your athletic um activities after school activities while you were going through this so when I was really young there was no after school like prior to 13 in we have what we call a middle school I'm not sure what the American is but prior to 13 years old um I just didn't like school I got by I didn't really try that hard and I didn't care that much I just didn't want to be there um and then when I went into secondary school, it was like a new start. You were 13 to 16 years old in this point, and everyone's a bit older. You know, you're you've gone through a bit more of puberty, so you've got a bit taller, you look a little different, you know, you're maturing. And I remember thinking, oh, this is further away as well from my where my mum lives. So I was like, and there's new people from different schools have all come to this one school. So for me, it's like, this is a fresh start. But I was still terrified that the ones that did know me from the old school might tell these new kids and that was another fear but I was like this is a new start a new thing joined the rugby in the school mainly to get out of lessons to be honest because we'd get to go play rugby when everyone else was studying and I thought eh, that would be fun and I thought it was just something to do a bit of sport um, but I joined a boxing club outside of school that really I found very helpful because I told I didn't go there to fight anyone I just got to hit the bags and as a, a young very angry frustrated person having a bag to hit I think really helped take a lot of the anger out and the frustration that I felt for life and for everything so that was a place I really got to express my anger safely um and what else in school yeah and grades I just done okay but I really did not try but I done good enough I always noticed that if I didn't try I done good enough but I had no incentive to try harder there was no 
I mean, my dad was a bit, the only reason I tried a little bit, I would say, if I tried, was because I knew maybe my dad would want me. He was always like, you've got to go to college, you've got to go to university, you've got to get your, your sort of studies. Um, whereas for me, it was just like, that's not, I can't see it fixing any of my issues. So I was like, I just, I just want out of this. I wasn't bothered. I was like, I'll just go work and do something and work my way up through working. But I wasn't interested in studying. So, Luke, thank you so much for sharing this. It's very heartbreaking to hear your childhood and the starvation part, not having food when you're growing up. And you are close to London. It's a developed country. It's not where <laughs> the everybody don't have food. They, they do have food. I imagine it's like city and be able to get food. So... Well, and then you compare that with other kids, like how can you describe to people who never experience hunger? How do you describe hunger? Yeah, because many people go very, it's very little time. I read a lot online where people now are trying to fast and try and they're like, oh, it's so difficult to miss even one meal a day. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, I grew up and it was like, in England, they have a, say, benefit system where you get money um, if you're not able to work or if you're ill. So my mum would get money, but because of her illness, she had zero money management skills. So as soon as the money came in, she would take it all out. She'd buy loads of food. She'd spend a load of money on a taxi and things to get it delivered. She couldn't budget like what's good. She would give people money. I found out later that she'd just give other people money and people then would prey on her, know exactly when her day is that she gets her money, wait for her at the cash machine and just ask her and say, have you got 20 pounds to lend me? And she'd be like, sure, I just got my money. She was really generous. And she always felt that other people needed help. So it's a nice thing that she's so compassionate and giving, but it got taken advantage of. She would lose money. I think she also just like went and gave money away like more than I could expect when I was younger maybe but the money she did get would disappear really quick and it when I was younger I think it was every two weeks or it might have been every month every two weeks or every month she would get money but it would only last for a few days to a week and then it would be like zero money and everything would start to run out and we would have a week where there's like near to no food you're eating that you know you're mixing some flour out the cupboard the things in the with like food items that you don't normally consume on their own you start to go through them and think can you make something with that and as a kid not knowing how to make food or how to cook and no one to teach you you're just experimenting with stuff um, and then just sometimes you just don't eat for a few days and i knew on the weekends though i would get some food so it's like it could go days without food during the week and it's like well weekend will come or you might get a school dinner so it was sort of just that's what happens I do remember getting the food delivery box like around Christmas time and I still to this day I'm not sure how or who or what that came from or how could but every so often when I was older it got arranged because me and my brother would help these things get done but when I was younger it happened and I don't know how it happened it might have been neighbors that told people or told a church or told someone and then we'd get all these different brands and all these different <laughs> items that we'd not seen so much of and stuff. So that was really nice and really special to see people just donate. Yeah, it's unimaginable. Like just kids are usually hungry and they, yeah, I, I just can't imagine not having food, not having enough food growing up and 
like in your situation i don't know how you survived yeah i remember my dad just saying when he goes you can eat so much and he'd even say to me to this day it's like yeah, whatever's in the fridge and i didn't know that he didn't have like a lot of money when i was little so i would eat everything in the fridge and one day i didn't know that that's like he's bought as much as he could to last us the weekend and he'd open the fridge and i've ate like loads of <laughs> nearly everything and he's like where's it gone and i was like oh, i thought it's there to eat <laughs> wow i'm very sorry to hear this but you did you get like physically abused as well or it's more of emotional financial um starvation no no physical abuse my the clothes like no sexual abuse at all from anyone um and then when i think my dad i don't even remember he said when i was little and i was naughty he spanked me once and my bum me and my brother both of us would play like being naughty and he goes he instantly felt so bad just giving us a spank he goes from that day he's like i'm never gonna even touch you again he just he said he just did not like the feeling he goes it wasn't even that hard he goes but he's he ended up being the type that he'll just give you a look or be really silent and that became worse like you didn't want to upset him anyway um and then my mum, it was like the uh, just strangeness of unpredictable environment was like its form of abuse. Occasionally, she would give you a little slap or would hold you down. Like she held me down to protect me from things she could see that I couldn't when I was young. You know, she'd be having shouting, saying, leave him alone and holding me down. She could have a knife in her hand, but she's not holding it at me. She's holding it to, to nothing. But you're there as a kid going like, can that turn on me? What if she one day does like because nothing makes sense that she's doing and everything's unpredictable you start to wonder and be curious like are you in danger yourself so i spent much of my childhood me and my brother would go sleep in the same room and then we would like push all the furniture up against the door to go to sleep and that was like standard most of our teenage life as well was like barricade your door just in case you know and it took a long time to not be constantly even when i was later in my life jumpy overprotective about like what's my surrounding what's going on sleep like can't sleep with doors not locked windows locked everything really safe and secure took a long time to sort of get out of that pattern wow so just to let you know in my book i give my adversity i talked a lot about my sexual abuse part but i remember barricading my door when I was taking a shower or a bath, actually, because um, my dad forced me to take bath and then forced me to touch his um, private areas. And yeah, it, it just was very scary to me. And I don't know how to describe when you're living with your perpetrator, basically, as a child, there's like no escape there's nothing that you can do when you're an adult and then say for instance in an abusive relationship it's hard as hard as it is you still have choice you still have transportation you still have friends um communication how to advocate for yourself but as a child when you are living in a situation barricading your door uh, it is you feel so trapped just so trapped yeah and we didn't have the internet or mobile phones and the things that people have now as a child like i remember having a computer console a game boy when i was really little that my dad got me and my brother to share and i remember that being a really good little 
distraction to escape from but it wasn't you couldn't connect with anyone else me and my brother could just share it um but it wasn't so i don't know what it's like for kids going through other things now but they're able to get online and connect with people or listen to a podcast like where we're talking now about the future and they're seeing maybe different possibilities of life no, i don't know but i imagine it's helps and is also a bit of chaos depending on what situation you're in and talk to me about your relationship that um the 10 years of your marriage that you said um how how did it how did your childhood life you kind of mentioned earlier like truly affect you do you recall some of the moment like devastating moment like maybe some confusion or something that really affected in your relationship um what affected i think the main thing that affected is as i got into my teenage years like i said i went to boxing i had this idea that i needed to be really tough um i needed to be strong you know and i needed to be the hero of the situation from role models and things i'd watched it's like you need to be tough strong and a hero and save other people but it made me really really disciplined um and again, I was always in fear that I could become like my mother. And I was told that that could randomly happen, that it could be genetic, it could be inherited. You could end up just like your mom. The doctors had said that to me. So that really put a lot of fear that that could happen. And I was like, I'm going to make sure I'm strong. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to be really strict on my diet. And I'm going to be really disciplined. And I'm going to have a future that makes sure that I'm secure financially. So I'm going to work and I'm going to work every moment I can. So I was really ambitious to create something different for myself. But in turn, that was made me cold in the way I behaved. You know, like when we first started dating for a few years, you don't see each other all the time. You know, you see each other in the good moments. You spend time to just go on dates. You might spend a few nights together here and there or go away for a weekend or something. So as I got into my later teens, it was like it was all nice and I hid my my past and I got to do all the work. And if I was feeling really ill and fatigued, I would stay in bed for the day and she wouldn't know. You know, and it wasn't as easy to connect with people like they can just, you know, do a video call with you back then like, and see what you're actually doing. Or if you're asleep, it was like if you don't when you ring them or chat on a normal phone, then you find out something. Um, so the first few years were really nice. I felt uncomfortable to be hiding stuff. The middle years were getting more and more of a struggle because I was getting more fatigued. My ambitions weren't getting met. My dreams weren't getting met. Well, all these things that I thought I would have got in my early 20s, I wasn't there at all financially. Life was still really hard. I didn't know about real depths of health. So my own health was getting worse. My, I said, insomnia was really bad and I was getting really bad anxiety. As soon as the sun set, I would be so agitated and angry because I knew now it's getting to nighttime and I'm not going to sleep. And I was in fear of sleeping because I'd lay there for hours and hours. And like, that's uncomfortable. And when you're living with someone like that, you know, she's fast asleep and I'm just laying next to her wide awake and you can't do anything because you don't want to wake the other person up. So you can't even watch something or do anything. Um, and then when you do fall asleep, it's pretty much the alarm goes up and someone's got to go to work and you just wake up tired. And so it was just like the life that I was living didn't match the life that it needed to be for someone else to actually enjoy your presence enough. It was very up and down. There's moments where I'd be happy to be with her. Um, and I always loved her and I always saw a future with her. 
but I wasn't happy within myself. I wasn't happy with the life that I had made for myself. I didn't think it was good enough. I didn't think I was good enough. Um, I didn't understand what depression was really. You know, you're just sort of told at that point it's when people feel sad. And I was like, anyone in my shoes would feel terrible. If they had all my problems, they would also feel terrible. I didn't think there was any alternative. So it was like I justified my own mental state from thinking it was just my experience in that time that was making me feel like that. And then it was just got, we just drifted apart as I was getting colder and colder as I tried to numb my feelings that also numbed my joyful feelings, you know? So she was with someone who just was losing their ambition, losing their spark. All the things she liked about me in the beginning of the relationship were dwindling. It's like a fire going out, you know? And I used to love dressing in colorful clothes and, and things like that. And when I was younger, I managed to get a market stall with my brother and we had our own clothes store where we'd get all clothes from London and then we'd sell them in our town and they're all fancy, nice, uh, stylish clothes. And then we could get clothes for ourselves. And I used to love wearing all that. But at the time my 20s come in, I was like, that's it, just one color, just gray. Everything was gray, different shades. And it was like the same clothes. I just lost that spark and that desire for life again. Because even though I'd done certain things and tried, I was getting tired. My depression was just getting stronger. Like I said the insomnia was just getting worse. And then one day she said, um, she goes, I can't, we was living together. We'd been married for two years after this. And so this was like, it'd been 10 years into the relationship. And she's just like, I can't do this anymore. She goes, I need a break. And I was like, a break. I was like, I didn't understand the concept. Cause I was like, we don't get breaks. You know, it's you, you're married. That's it. You just work through it. Um, and yeah. And then we never got back together after that. And I found out, I think how long, Eight months after that, she was pregnant with someone else's kid. She'd always dreamed of having children. And I was like, I'm not having children till I am very secure. You know, and again, leading from my childhood, she's like, you just, she goes, you just adapt as you have kids. She goes, you have them and you just make sure things are work out. And I couldn't do that mentality. I was like, I can't just deal with it when it happens. I, I need to prep. And again, coming from probably my own child, I was like, I don't want my child to have to struggle. And not like I don't want to spoil them. I want them to make sure they have food every day. And I want to make sure I've got time to spend with them every day. That I'm not having to work away from them just to provide them for that food. You know, it's always for me, it's like trying to find the balance. So, yeah, so that's what drifted us apart. And that's sort of where it went. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that part of you and in your life. And then my first marriage I didn't really write too much on um, my book, but since I really didn't know what PTSD was or depression was, I used to just not say anything. And I used to be a mute. I get triggered, but I wasn't able to logically explain what was going on in my brain. And I wasn't able to communicate the way that I can now. Um, and used to run, hide. Um, and for him, at one point, he said, I'm not your therapist. And it, I just didn't really understand what was going on. And now, this is between 2006 and 2002 to 2009. And now looking back, my first marriage, um, it truly affected him 
Mm-hmm. Also. And yeah, it, it just manifests this childhood trauma and adversity. You were in London, I was in Japan, uh, near Tokyo. We were in completely different places in the world, but these adversities would, would never discriminate where you are, how you look like. I feel it's unfortunately universal. Um, so talk to me about 2015. You mentioned that you wanted to um, take your own life again because it got really hard. Um, what? And then you at the bridge you mentioned um can you describe how did it lead to that action yeah so 2015 like i said i met someone like a year and a half before then after i'd been divorced in the early oh, i don't even know what year to be honest but i'd, I'd the, the relationship had ended for a couple of years um and i'd said in that time like i'm ne- I, i'm not now even the same as i said for like how i'm going to have a child now that was raised for the whole relationship. It's like, I'm not getting in a relationship until I have this stability, this foundation. You know, same as I wanted to have a child, I was like, I've got to have that stability, that foundation before that commitment. So I said the same to myself for a relationship. I was like, I am not looking for one until I sort everything else out. Um, And then I was at the time, I was a personal trainer and one of my friends, um, she's a professional female bodybuilder. And I was her trainer, but she also had her own clients. And she was going to America to do uh, guests posing and guest events. And she's like, oh, she goes, I've got one of my clients. She goes, I've, I've got booked next week. Can you take her on board? Can you do her sessions? And I was like, yeah, I'll do it while you're away. And this was Danielle. And I trained her. And we both got on really well because she had just come out. And I didn't know at the time, but she would just come out of a really abusive long-term relationship. She did not like men. I knew that straight away. I saw that straight away in her. She did not like men. And that's why she was training with this female bodybuilder. She went to a gym where it wasn't a normal one, found people that weren't quite the same. And that happened to be where I trained. And um, But she was like, I could tell she was a little bit hesitant. But the other lady said, like, she can trust me. I'm okay. Just try the sessions out. But we got on. And it was very clear that neither of us wanted a relationship at all. And she was there to work hard and I was only looking for clients that work hard and aren't distracted. So it was perfect. You know, uh, part of my sessions was to get people stronger is the main thing, to make their body fit and capable. It wasn't so much about having a beach body. It was like, I'm going to get you as strong as possible so that you just feel good within yourself because that's what I would always been doing for myself. Um, And as she was getting stronger and getting fitter, part of that is, the gym was in a forest just outside of town. We'd go for a walk afterwards to do a bit of cardio and just still the mind. It was good for me, good for her. And we got to know each other. And after like a year and a half, um, we'd been seeing each other like all the time, hanging out outside of actually training each other. We'd become really good friends. And then one day she took me aside and was like, oh, I've got a question. She goes, a real big dilemma. And she's like, I can't be your friend anymore. She's like, I'm, I've developed feelings for you. She goes, over the last month. And she goes, and she goes, either I act upon them or she goes, I just can never see you again because she goes, it, I can't, it's too painful. And I, and I said to her, like, okay, give me, give me the weekend to think about it, which is just how I work again. I have to think things over quite a lot. Um, 
So I was like, give me the weekend. She was like, okay, she knows what I'm like. She was like, I'll let you have that weekend, the longest weekend she said ever. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, I just couldn't imagine her not in my life. So I was like, I'm going to take this risk and dive in. And I wasn't looking for love, but it's happening anyway. So I'm not going to lose this opportunity. And yeah, met her on a Monday. We got together and we just got on and it was a connection. We kissed on that first day and it was an instant connection. Didn't feel strange. Didn't feel like I was kissing a friend. You know, so we built up a friendship, we built up this connection, then it became a relationship. But a year and a half later, she was in a hardware store and she was always a busy, very busy person herself, always doing something. And she was carrying a load of paint, I think it was, and she had a cardiac arrest. Her heart rate had gone so high that it goes really, really high and then just cuts out and stops completely. There was a paramedic in the shop at the time who just happened to be shopping shopping there with his ambulance outside and he had the electric pads that they zap you with the defibrillators and brought her back to life on that but because of the time she was out and the lack of oxygen she had a mild brain damage had damage to her leg they said her leg's not working and she won't walk again and she just wasn't the same when she came back around and her health like in the next couple of weeks from that time just was going downhill really really fast you know she was getting sicker and sicker and sicker really quick um, yeah, and she was in a wheelchair, bedridden. I was told she wouldn't walk. They said she's just lucky to survive this. No one survives a sudden cardiac arrest. They said it's really, really slim odds that you even survive it. So you're lucky. But 99% chance you will not survive another five years. You will have another one. And there's no chance you'll survive the next one. And so I was like, okay, so I've got a five-year outlook for her life. That's constantly going downhill. So now I'm caring for her after just falling in love and feeling like there's a new start to life. And her independence was what was quite attractive to me. She was a really independent woman. And I was like, she's got her own stuff going on. She's doing her own business. You know, she's got stuff going on in her life. So I was like, that works with my life because I've got a lot going on in my life as well. And she'd already known about my mom. I talked about that with her. She knew that I was a carer for my mom while trying to do my own business and stuff. So we had all that talk when we were friends. And... Yeah, but now I had become her carer. Now she lost her job and her work and her life was falling apart. And then I was going and caring for her all the time. So I had to lose my job and my work. And at the same time caring for my mum. But in this year, my mum started, she's done many suicide attempts. But this year, she, they started to compound really quickly. Uh, when I look back on it now, I think... Because it was every time I would leave the house, it would happen nearly. Like when I was left for a little while, because I wasn't there as much, it would happen. And at first I used to think it's because she like missed me. And she's thought like where she's trying to get like she's too lonely is what I was thinking back then. Now when I look back, I think she might have been trying to actually take away. I think she felt like a burden to me. And I think she was trying to take the pressure off me. She's like, if I take myself out of the picture, he will have less pain in his life. I think that's actually what was going through her mind. And so I think she was trying to commit suicide to try and take the pressure off me and my brother. And my brother was getting ill as well during this time. He was, again, like, has this trauma and all these things. He was getting chronic fatigue and diagnosed Crohn's disease. Like, he was getting really sick. So it was like running around caring for everyone. But one day I took my mum back. It was about her sixth attempt in that year of suicide where I've had to take her to the hospital, get her stomach pumped, because it was always on uh, paracetamol, which I think in America you call Tylenol. She would go because they're so easy to get hold of and so toxic. She'd just go and buy them from the shop and just take the whole packet. Um, so, yeah, so I remember getting her back from the hospital and 
the whole time I'd been worried that Danielle might have taken her own life while I'm gone because she was depressed and suicidal now being bedridden, losing all her life and function and also being a burden on my life. Like, so she, she was also in that state, but she also had the risk that she could die any moment of another cardiac arrest. So the whole time I'm with my mum, I am worrying whether Danielle's alive. So as soon as I get my mum back, I have to leave to go and see Danielle. And like I said, at this point, I'd lost my job. I'd lost my car. I was It was a 45-minute to an hour walk to get to Danielle's from my mum's. And as I was going there, I'm now fearing that my mum's going to do another overdose as soon as I left. I don't know if Danielle's going to be alive when I arrive. And at one point of the journey, I go across a big uh, motorway, big highway with six lanes of high-speed traffic. And it's just south, like it's a big road that comes off London. And I had crossed the bridge. And as I was crossing the bridge, it just hit me to like, I can't do this anymore. I can't take this anymore. It's been felt what felt like my entire life has been stressful. It's been trauma. It's been pain. It's been suffering. You thought by now you would have got out of it. You know, I was in my late 20s, mid late 20s. And it's like, I thought by now life would be so different. You know, I thought I, I thought I'd have my own kids in my early 20s. That was my dream when I was younger. I was like, by the time I'm 23, I'll be have some form of business set up. I have at least one kid. By the time I'm 30, I'll have three kids. Everything will be working out. And now I'm in my mid 20s. I'm divorced. I've got a dying partner, a dying mother. And, you know, and I, was, I even was stealing to eat at that time in my life because I lost my work and I weren't able to get any money or benefits. So I was like, I had to go to the shops and literally just steal a steak or steal some food. And it was like, it's just too hard. I can't do this. I've been doing this too long. And it was like, the future's so bleak. Danielle's not going to get better tomorrow or next week. My mum's not going to get better tomorrow or next week. And it's like, there was no future. There was no sight of anything getting better. And it was like, everything of the past has been horrible. Everything of the future's horrible. And here's an opportunity to jump and end it all. Here, like, like just a feeling of just like, just quit, just give up, just jump. And it was not only jump, it's like, make a mess. Wreck everyone else's day. Let's see how many cars you can take out when you jump cause chaos you know there was this thing of just real disrupting my environment not just taking my own life but like whether it's calling attention to the pain calling whatever it is that was the sort of feeling within me and i stopped on the bridge and i'm looking over the edge and the cars are flying 70 100 miles an hour and in the last second like i just was hit with a force not to, to keep fighting whether it came from my like i said being the hero doing the fighting work or divine intervention or something like i just felt like something touched me and was like you'll find a way, you'll find a different way. And I didn't know what that way was or where that was taking me, but something felt different. And it was like, go, just keep moving. So I, I moved off the bridge. I went to see Danielle and yeah, she wasn't in a good place. She was alive, but there was something within me where I felt like I'm thirsty for something new and I'm going to discover something new that I will feel differently about my external environment where I'm not going to suffer it. I was like, and I don't know how, but I'm going to find this way. I'm going to find a way to feel good despite the chaos. And that was a sort of journey that I went on and started to develop and change. And yeah, life didn't get easier. <laughs> life continued to get really chaotic and really crazy. But I did develop a different inner balance, a love within, where I feel like I feel like I could be so joyful now, even if I was in the same environment. It's like a different way of feeling, but it's an internal feeling. Well, thank you so much. It's um, it's such an incredible 
journey that you have to go through. And then as you are speaking to me, I could picture you on the bridge. I could picture Danielle on the hardware store, like a movie, but it's not, it's your life. And as crazy as it sounds, I have no idea how you survived it. So let's uh, move on to the second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome. You mentioned a little bit. So after the thought attempt 2015, you something hit you and then something kind of shifted. So this is a part of the podcast I really appreciate and love where a lot of survivors of significant adversity and trauma when people, majority of people don't understand the significance of it, they'll just say, okay, get a therapist, you're gonna be fine. And it's not like that. It's everyday thing in your head and then everything. So this part of the podcast where guests shares the tools, I actually applied some of the tools that my guest shared um, for myself and then for other people as well. So, Luke, this is a very important part of the podcast. What are the tools that you use the most that really saved your life, kept it going, that you can share with our audience? Yeah, so there, there was, like I said, there were so many things, so many things that I tried. So it's hard to know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly, say, what was the most significant. So I'll try and cover a whole load of bits and not necessarily in the order say that I'd done them, but in the order that I felt them the most in like what I feel was the biggest changes within for me. Um, and the first real change was realizing I didn't love myself. I think that was something I was completely unaware of. I didn't know that that was a thing. And I think I'd probably heard and seen online, like, you know, the phrase self-love, self-care, these sort of trending and hashtags and different things. So I just ignored it. You know, you might see a video come up and it's like how I do my self-love routine makeup or something. And it's like, most of it's very feminine aimed at women. So you, when you're looking at videos as a male, you don't even notice it. You're like, oh, that's not for me. You know, so I, it was just a thing I didn't realize. And it was actually before Danielle's cardiac arrest that this journey really started for me. Because um, she had her own apartment and I'd go around to hers and we'd spend some time together. And she is like, one day she's like, oh, I'm going to make you a bath. And I was like, a bath? It's like, wow. It's like, I never have a bath. I've never had, you know, you, it's like you have a shower, you get done, you got something to do, you get on with it. You know, so it was like, she's like, no, I'm going to make you a bath, put on some music, some candles. And she goes, just stay in there for at least an hour. I was like, an hour? Really? I was like, that's forever. I was like, I can't, I want, to, I want a quick shower and get out. And I did it anyway. And I went for a bath and I remember laying in there and just listening to really soft, nice music, you know, and just, there's not, you can't keep washing yourself when you're in a bath, you know, once you're soaking, you just sort of sit in there. So my mind is running, my mind is thinking, and it was this break between everything. And I remember sitting in there and just looking at my arm. I, I held my arm up and I remember just like, rubbing the muscles like if you were to say have a muscle ache and I remember just rubbing it but then I was crossing it and I was just thinking about it and I was like ah oh, this is my arm and then I was thinking about the rest of my body and I was like just having this real overwhelming sense of how I've been talking to my own body that I've been abusive to myself because I was really strict on myself for my entire upbringing you know I was really disciplined I really pushed myself physically um 
and I just realized how much so. But and I realized I never saw my body as good enough. You know, I struggled with weight loss a lot of my life, and I was just like never the way I want. I wanted to be so perfect, had this perfection image of what I should be, how I should be, what I should look like. And I was just hit by this overwhelming sense that I've not been treating myself kindly, to say the least. I've been what I now have called an inner dictator on my from my mind to my body that it was very abusive and i look at it now like making a separation between the mind and the body and putting myself as the witness and i witness the relationship between that mind and body so i disidentify with the mind disidentify with the body and see them as mine but not me whereas i am the witness to them and i can set the intention to how they behave but if i'm not paying attention to this life and conditions will start to intertwine these and my mind had become this dictator over the body and very similar to like i see it like a, a male female relationship or a feminine masculine relationship where one becomes really dominant and one just wants to please but it's never good enough and it was like that it's like i had this mind that was always so demanding on every action that i did uh, and the body had just become sad you know and this mind is like you're never good enough and it, all these little things were just sparking when I was having a bath and I had tears running down my eyes. And then I just was saying to myself in my head, like, do you know, I, I appreciate this body for being there. It's been there my entire life. It's done its best it ever could do. You know, and that started my discovery of realizing that I didn't love my body. And that was like a beginning process of me into self-love to just start to love the body that I have despite its expectations. You know, I blamed my body that you know, it was fatigued all the time. I was irritated the fact that I was always tired. I was irritated that I couldn't sleep. But it was like my body's not good enough. It doesn't work properly. And this would be a constant sort of pressure. You know, so it was actually just saying like, however you behave, however this body is, it's okay. I know you're there. I know you're doing your best. I'm going to take care of you now. I'm going to try and nurture this body. I'm going to do it with more love. I always dieted and concentrated on nutrition. But it's like now I'm... The reason I'm not putting crap in isn't because I want you to be perfect. The reason I'm not putting crap in is because I love you. And I don't want to put give you crap. You know, it's like a totally different attitude that I was doing. Same as someone had a child. It's like, you got to be the best athlete in the world. This is your diet. Here's what you got to eat. you got to perform better, do better. you got to be the best. Or you just had a child and just be like, you know, you're so amazing. Here's a delicious meal. This is going to make you just feel so good and be so strong at whatever you do. You know, it's like an encouragement. And it was a totally different sense of feeling for me that I'd never felt. And then I was like, all right. And then as my time went on, it was then isolating that mind part. And it's like, can I rewrite that, them thoughts? Can I actually change that voice? I've done it for my body, but can I forgive my mind and the, the pressure and the thoughts and all that that's flowing around? Because there's so many thoughts that pop in that you don't even want, you know? It's like, what's that doing there? Get rid of that. You spend time trying to meditate and you're like bombarded with all this stuff. And it's like, don't want all that stuff. You know, some of it's nice, but if someone had a little earplug of every thought that I had going on in a day, they'd soon take it out and throw it away. They wouldn't want to hear it, you know, but neither did I. So it was going through a process of, right, how can I change that voice inside? How can I change that inner dictator? How can I make that a smooth, kind voice all the time? Not just when I have to put myself into a practice, because I would do something like a self-love practice and affirm my body and affirm myself as soon as I didn't, I could feel that dictator coming back in, pushing me, whipping me to get things done, to be better, to do good. And that'd be through my thoughts and my actions again. So it was like, right, I need to spend time to really change that. And it was little moments of silence. I'd literally spend 
developed it into a method and a technique now that's more precise. But to start with, it was just 10 minutes a day to sit still, try not to think of anything, and afterwards to take note of what you did think of that kept popping up. Was there one thought that kept coming up? You know, and write that down. And over doing that for like seven days, have a look at all your thoughts for the week. And a lot of the time, they'd be the exact same one. Every day, the same reoccurring thought is popping up, popping up, popping up. And then it was like, right, I'm going to write what I call an intercepting thought. And like I said, I like different role models. Bruce Lee was one of my role models when I was younger. He's what stopped me doing competitive fighting because he always said the art of fighting is to not fight. And he's like, you don't fight to compete. You fight to master yourself. And that just struck something in me when I was younger because I wanted to be in full control. So I wanted to master myself. And... Um, but I remember that, and I remember his way was Jikundo, the way of the intercepting fist. And he taught that you don't strike first, but if someone strikes you, you've made yourself perfect to retaliate to that strike. So I was developing a technique that I call the way of the intercepting thought. So I recorded my thoughts that were appearing so I could come up with the perfect pattern to intercept them when they do. So instead of them me having to defend myself all the time from myself and my thoughts and tiring myself out, I was like, that thought's going to come in. I'm going to intercept it with the counter thought and knock it straight out so it doesn't. And as I practiced that, it was a bit like, they said, like bullying. It was like these thoughts that are here were kept picking on me. They kept coming back. Oh, I can go and meditate, which is like coming out of school for the weekend and you feel all good. But Sunday night's here. Monday, I'm back in school. Monday, I'm getting bullied again. And it's like that pressure's there. Yeah. So it's every time we meditate and you take that time out and that silence, it's all good until you stop and then you're like it's all going to come back and that wasn't satisfying me and that was just trying to find a different way to get that and that's what I found worked for me it's literally writing down the opposite of the thought so even if it was something as simple as like you're having the thought do you know what? I'm not good enough my body's weak and tired and then it would be writing down like I am good enough this body is strong and more capable than I can imagine you know give it a chance, whatever it is, just writing and constantly trying to rewrite the best sentence. That's the opposite of that sentence there and constantly trying to tra transform that as much as possible and then reading it all the time throughout the day. So I remember it so that when that thought happens, I can counter it rather than, oh, the thought's there, get a paper out, read it. That's too long. The thought's hit me. I'm tired. I've had to think about it. It was like trying to have an instant response. So when it hits, I, I intercept. And it was speeding that process up that really cleaned up my mind and my thoughts. And it was a bit, like I said, like standing up to the bullies. They'll go and pick on someone else. It's like the thoughts just started to disappear. Then recurring thoughts just started to vanish and I didn't have to intercept them anymore. They were just gone. And it was like, okay, that's starting to change the patterns that are cycling within me. And then years later, it was like, right, if any just do that anytime I feel like my mind's a bit cluttered it's like just spend a little bit of time in silence see if any new thoughts are coming because life has always been chaotic there's always been something dramatic happening so there might be new reoccurring thoughts that are coming in but the self-love and I add one more bit and then I'll let you add on because I feel like I spoke for a while but the self-love really transformed later in my journey after practicing it it was like a wave it was like self-love practicing feeling really good I feel no worth value i feel useless need to practice self-love oh, i practiced it and i'm up and i was like riding this wave all the time and it was good when i was up but i'd come back down and have to constantly again build myself up and i said and it wasn't consistent 
it wasn't until I adapted the self-love practices to unconditional self-love. And it would be to affirm myself and to really feel, again, like I love my body despite any condition. And if I get rid of all conditions, there's no expectation on its behavior. And the same with my thoughts, my mind, my actions. It's like, right, there's no expectations on me. So there's no conditions to be met. I can't judge anything. And it's like, I'm going to lose all self-judgments, all self-doubts. It's like, I'm just going to be unconditionally loving to myself, no matter what. You know, and it's a certain awareness to know yourself. It's like, no matter what, I'm going to have this unconditional love. And going through that practice and really trying to feel it and find it, that's when stability comes in my in myself and my balance it's like well you know i didn't realize the expectations i've been chasing for myself but losing that really was the biggest say stability changes changing it to unconditional self-love and like i said with the identity on the body the identity on the mind and that they're not me but they're mine to unconditionally love and nurture what's the best i can do towards nurturing them and if i'm not don't judge yourself and blame yourself and go into that guilt cycle. If I if I went and ate something that I know isn't the best thing for my body, say, and I'm like, I wouldn't then straight straight away blame myself and go, you failed again, you've done it wrong, you could have done better. I thought you loved your body. None of that talk would happen. It'd be like, no, you did it. Sometimes you're going to do things like that. You're not perfect. It's okay. You know, you already know. So it's like just you're back in the moment. You're back in the present. And it's like, no, you're going to enjoy that. Your mind's going to enjoy that. Your body said it can handle it. It's going to deal with it. If it doesn't go toilet, next time stickers don't do it. You know, it's like just keeping an eye on things. Like, can it handle it? Can are you doing okay? And just always trying to look for the cleanest, best option for the mind or the body, what we consume. So that that would be my two main tools was working like the self-love, unconditional self-love, the isolation of body and mind, and then the intercepting thoughts by recording your thoughts in little moments of stillness throughout a week and then trying to come up with counteractive thoughts for, for them and practicing them and repeating them. Well, Luke, thank you so much for sharing that. I love not just the self-love. We should make hashtag unconditional self-love and really practice that. And I agree with you as a survivor myself. I was abusing, abusing my body, my mind by letting people get into my space, especially relationship, abusive relationship, um, because it was comfortable and abusive was towards myself. Self-affirmation was never in my agenda and self-love was never taught. I was always violated growing up. So how would you learn boundary how would you learn self-advocacy how would you learn self-love and as an adult our generation especially when we didn't really grow up with internet outside resources and mental health talk which i am really trying hard to destigmatize and normalize this conversation with you and with other guests and audience and as a journalist i just wrote an article about mental health training for the high school students' parents. What are the signs that your teenagers have, which is sometimes comes up in the sports, um, you know, not just the academic part of it, um, social part of it. it you, you might start to see a different scenario, different light for that. And self-love is a big, big trend yet 
still we need to do that because as you said interception part i was talking to my daughter he's six, uh, six years old my son too when whenever the bullying or something weird happens like people say rude things i always do the role play with them like intercept like what you say counterpart to say you know just some mean words that was said to them like i would rephrase okay say that to me say what she said to you to me and i would come up with something stronger or counterpoint like say um one of my friends like son was called like no you can't sit there that you, you have to stand up if I get out of chair from his peer. And I told my children, if I if somebody said that to me, I would say, did you pay for it? This town has very good concert venue, which we get millions of dollars. That's why there's a chair. You're not entitled to tell me because you didn't buy that. Somebody bought it. Like it's equally given to us. So I deserve to sit here. So I think learning this not just outside but inside oh Julie you're stupid you're not beautiful those are the things that I was said but then even after I separate myself physically from my dad it kept happening in my brain so reprocessing relearning what had happened to us you me other victims of child abuse in many ways that later on discovering self-love self-care um having dialogue with yourself and then realizing your body is sanctuary and then how important it is not just physically but mentally like i do movie i do a journalist job and it's high high expected performance you need to be 100% mentally, physically there. Otherwise, you will lose the opportunity. And I didn't realize how important it is to not mess up my mental health as well as the physical health. So I really appreciate you telling us about your discovery of taking the bath, and thanks to Danielle for <laughs> the bath part of it. But, you know, you are very aware and alert, and I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing on my podcast, A Gift from Adversity. So let's move yeah, on. Sure, yes, let's move on to the last question, which is a gift. So Luke, you've shared a lot with us, but what would you say a gift that came from your adversity? Yeah, it's multitude. I love that that's the name of your show first. When you said to me the very first time, it's called a gift from adversity, because that's how I perceive it now. It's like, I feel blessed to live my whole life how I lived it. I feel that it's all been a gift. Um, and I feel that's a choice we can make. I think that's part of our freedom of choice is we can choose our perception. And the way I explain it to other people is like, if you had a child doing a puzzle, and one outlook is to make them like you said, cold, angry, get the job done, do it right, or you'll be punished. And the other one's like, you know, you can just do this. You're going to enjoy it. I don't care if you don't get it done. I'm just going to, I'm really enjoying watching you do it. And they're really encouraging and nurturing and loving. Which one's going to change the way the child's perceiving the, the puzzle as to how they're going to actually act and perform and how good of a job they will do. 
So for me, it was like, if I see that my life is a gift and my life is blessed and my life is serving me, it's useful and I'm no longer being used. So I don't have this perception of like, why me? Oh, life was hard, like it's tough. You know, all them things, they slow me down and I want to be productive because I have a purpose and a mission. And that's another whole area to, to go in is if you've got a, a real purpose and you feel like there's a use for you in the world, which I feel a lot of people are really missing. But if you feel like there's a use and a purpose for your life, you don't want to waste it. So you want to be as much as, much as productive as possible. You want to have as more energy as possible. You want to be able to think something, act on it and do it swiftly. So whether that's just to have fun whether that's to create something, to be in a relationship with someone, a friendship, to be the best version that's also like harmonious within yourself, that you feel good, that you're not forcing it, so you want to do it. It's like, like I said, I always pushed myself. Now it's like there's a pull within me that pulls me into things, and it's a much more pleasant way to be. So perceiving life as a gift, and I say my mother was one of my greatest gifts of my life. Yeah, she passed nearly, nearly a year ago to this week. It's when she passed away. She fell over in hospital and banged her head, went into a coma and then died later that day. And I remember that day it happened really clearly um, because when she passed, I was overwhelmed, but I was joyous because I was in such a good place with myself and I had been appreciating her life so much and what she gifted me. There was no pain. It was like her suffering is over. And she is a gift. She blessed me. Now I'm going to be even more useful to use that experience, to share that experience of what insight she gave me into life and mental health and physical health and child's health and awareness, you know, and a heightened awareness since I was a childhood to the environment, to behavior, to small acts. Like when I was little, I would see other kids. Um, you'd go around a friend's house after school, I'd see they have a very different house to me from starters, like just carpeted floors and clean. And it was like, that's different. You know, maybe they got both their parents and their mum cooks some dinner and she cooks me dinner and I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. I'm getting real cooked home dinner. This is different. You know, and then my friend would moan, oh, I don't like this. That's not what I like. Oh, this is no good. And like, it blow my mind as a child. I was like, well, how, how can you not just be happy that your mum's made you some food? That's amazing. You know, so from a very young age, the littlest acts, I saw how important they were. I saw how how much difference that is for someone and how, how how to really appreciate the little things. I think that made me think about home life and the appreciation and the gratitude to be aware of it. Like I said, when I was a child, it was a suffering. It was all I, all I saw was suffering. Everywhere I looked, I saw everyone suffering. I saw animals suffering. I saw the environment suffering. I saw people suffering. It's like all I could see was pain. And like they say, it's a reflection of your internal. All I felt was pain. All I felt was suffering. So I was super aware and that's all I could see is all the bad. Whereas now it's like, no, I can see suffering without feeling it because I'm acting towards relieving it. I'm acting with compassion. Like I call myself a, a compassionate content creator because I do my best to create as much compassion and content as kind, loving, that is trying to aid people out of their pain and suffering. In whichever is my best way, it may not be the best way, but it's my best. And that's all I try to do. So it's like I do that and then I do it for my other services. But everything from my life, I try and use the experience rather than the experience using me. So I look for moments. If there's a really painful time, now that I can look back at them times without the pain, I try and think, right, what can I take? I'm going to take from that. That take took something from me when it happened. But what am I going to take for it now? What can I take and use for service towards something or someone else that's going to bring harmony into the world? 
And it's like, right, I've had loads of chaos. There's got to be lots of opportunities there for a unique perspective. And I, like I said, I use the word opportunity and I dissect the word. Like OP, op, we use for operation, which is like strategic action. Yeah. And then we've got port, which is like to carry. It's a place like a harbor. It's somewhere that's something stored. And it's like then unity. That's quite an easy word. There's a unity there. There's something that needs to be brought together. And like I say, whether that's within or external. So for me, it's like, right, it's an opportunity, an operation for strategic action yeah, to carry something to unity, to bring it on that journey to more unified behavior, whether that's internally through my mind and body or in the environment that I see. I was like, I can do something better here. I remember seeing, it's an example I've used in my podcast, I think. I might have even used it when I spoke to you in yours. I'm not sure because I like to use it. And I was at a beautiful lake in Spain, like beautiful green trees everywhere, like bluest waters, really, really nice. And as I'm walking along, I came across like two bin bags full of rubbish all over the floor. People come for a picnic and there's a rubbish everywhere, glass bottles smashed. And I was going through my own journey at this point of like no judgment, you know, like not judging myself, I'm not judging others. And when you see something like that, it's very easy to get agitated or to get angry. And I just smiled. And I was like, I've got bags with me. I can go get some bags. They're not far in the vehicle. I can clean this up. Ain't I lucky to be the one to be here to clean this up? And I was looking around and I was like, there's so much beauty here. that even two bin bags of rubbish is insignificant to the vast beauty. But I could concentrate on that rubbish and feel rubbish and get angry. And the person there who done it isn't even there. They're not going to see or feel my anger. So it makes no difference to them. It won't change their behavior, but it will change how I feel. It will change how I feel for the rest of the day. It will change if I came back to Danielle and I'm come back and I'm angry. You won't believe what I've just seen, the injustice, these disgusting bits. And I'm all angry. She's going to feel that. She's going to not want to see me angry. And she's going to be upset and be trying to work towards making me feel better. Whereas I come back, I'm happy, I'm smiling. Two bags of rubbish. So look what I've got. So I just cleaned up some rubbish from this beautiful lake. So let's take it to the bin. And it's just changing that perception within. And like I said, it's an opportunity. And whether that brings balance internally or externally, you know, it's either way, it depends on the situation. But like you said, to look at life, to look at your, and I use another word like trauma. I just change it to drama. Yeah. And drama, what story, what hero, what character doesn't get development through drama? You know, that's the we wouldn't watch or any entertainment or any theater any film read any book if there was zero drama in it we'd go there's nothing happening there's no story you know maybe even a painting has drama added into it or it's nothing you know there's some form of something we see as a drama as something to learn from to grow from but if we don't use it we'll feel used by it and i find if you can turn your trauma to drama how does that build your character so that they're of service, they're useful rather than being used. Again, that's all parts. And I think rewiring and going, right, it's a gift. Maybe the wrapping is really, really tight. You know, I look at my mom's experience I had and I'm like, that was like someone got a present. And for a laugh, they wrapped it in a couple of layers of wrapping paper and they put tape around every edge so I couldn't even peel it. You know, and I didn't have a pair of scissors or a knife. And it took me years and years to get through this wrapping paper to find the gift it was very frustrating but i was like constantly just trying to get into it and once i did i was like oh there's a gift in there and what is the gift something that i can use in service something that i can use for others something i can use for myself so yeah that's why that's why i say my gift is it's just perception of the word gift is a big part of it well thank you luke for sharing your story with us and this is a huge service for 
me for our audience and for this podcast and truly appreciate you sharing your story wisdom lessons tools and a gift with us today and i look forward to getting to know you as a friend and hopefully we will encourage each other to create more useful content for our audience social media whatsoever or people around us or even picking up a trash <laughs> and <laughs> it's just uh have been great talking to you and i appreciate you so so much for coming to a gift from university today yeah no problem no, it's beautiful to speak with you and connect reach out anytime and yeah say hello to your, your children i don't think your little girl's old enough to even know who i am yet but maybe one day i'll be able to say hello to her too maybe she can beat her brother's record and she can he was 11 when he came on Yes. Maybe when she's 10, she can come on and just talk about him. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> thank you so much again, Luke. And thank you to our audience again for listening. We have uh, great shows in the past and then um, really constantly looking for more guests who can talk about the adversity tools and then a gift. So reach out to me anytime. And thank you again. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for having me.